Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. 1980 was a year of Olympic highs and lows. In the Winter Games in Lake Placid, New York, the American hockey team pulled off an upset win over America's bitter rivals, the heavily favored Soviet Union hockey team, in the semifinal game. American hockey team would go on to win the gold. American kids in gyms, in pools, and on running tracks cheered and awaited their chance to take on the Cold War adversary in the Summer Olympics. It was a great, great Winter Olympics, said Glenn Mills, a swimmer, for us, and we weren't even supposed to be that good in the Winter Olympics. We were thinking, wait until we do our thing in the summer. It was such an emotional high. We were so happy for all of them, and we couldn't wait to do it ourselves. Or there were those kids who were in their summertime sports who weren't thinking about getting their shot to contribute to the geopolitical push and pull. They just wanted to compete in the Summer Olympics in the sport they'd worked at before the sun came up and the paper landed on the front lawn. But those kids were denied that chance. America boycotted the Summer Olympic Games in 1980 in response to the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. Here, on the eve of the next Winter Olympiad, we'll have the story of that decision by President Jimmy Carter after a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is February 5th, 1980, and heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali has landed in Tanzania on a diplomatic mission for the American president. What, you thought Dennis Rodman was the only one who could be an athlete and maintain the careful equilibrium between nation states on the diplomatic front? Well, anyway, Ali was traveling to Africa to build a coalition of countries that would join the United States in boycotting the Olympics, the Olympics that were scheduled for that summer in Moscow. But the act of persuasion in favor of the U.S. policy didn't exactly go off so smoothly. I'm against any country on anything they do unjust. Now, I'm not here to say I'm here to back everything America do in the future and everything she has done. In this issue here, I'm with America. Now, if I'm wrong, I want you all to show me where I'm wrong, and I'll go home and counsel my tutor and tell the whole world in Tanzania they showed me I was wrong, and I quit this whole thing. I'll leave here today. Wait, what's the champ talking about? I thought that he was there to speak on behalf of U.S. policy. This does not sound like it's going well. Well, let's step back first and find out why Muhammad Ali is in Africa and what exactly is going on. But before we even start that, the quotes in the tease were from Jerry Caraccioli's book, Boycott, Stolen Dreams of the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. A lot of the work in this podcast is from that volume. And I'll also be uh, referring repeatedly to another book by um, Nicholas Evan Sarantakes. It's called Dropping the Torch, Jimmy Carter, the Olympic Boycott and the Cold War. Sarantakes works at the uh, U.S. War College. Okay, back to our story. On the Christmas Eve of 1979, Soviet tanks rolled into Afghanistan. It was the first invasion by the Soviets of another country since 1945. Uh, the Communist Republic was not exactly invading, though, in the traditional sense, because it, the in incursion, the movement into Afghanistan was preceded by an official order on the 25th of Christmas, uh, 25th of, of December. And that official order said, quote, the state frontier of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan is to be crossed on the ground and in the air by forces of the 40th Army and Air Force at 1500 hours on 25 December. 
The Soviets sauntered in to Afghanistan because the Afghan president thought he was friendly with the Soviets. The Afghan president's name uh, was Hafizullah Amin. Amin had a portrait of Joseph Stalin on his desk, and when uh, he, Amin, was subjugating the Afghan people on behalf of the communist regime, he nevertheless ruffled a little, a few feathers back in Moscow to the point where uh, he was criticized for his brutality by the Soviet leaders back in, in Moscow. And he re- responded, Comrade Stalin showed us how to build socialism in a backwards country. So relations continued to sour between Amin and the Soviet faction, which oversaw Afghanistan. Um, but somehow this word didn't quite get to Amin or he thought, they weren't really serious, and, and so he was. He thought everything was in pretty good shape with the Soviets when they arrived on the 25th of December. In fact, he allowed them to arrive, thinking that they were bringing reinforcements to his efforts because he had just uh, taken control recently and was always trying to quell insurgents in the country. So he felt this way even through till December 27th, and he continued to feel this way when he and everyone else at his uh, dinner had significant tummy troubles, so much so that um, they all fell ill, some of them passing out to um, poison, which had been put in their food by the Soviets. And as he was being revived, Amin was being revived by doctors, the palace in which he was having the lunch started to be attacked by Soviet commandos, but he didn't know this at the time. So when he, in his groggy state, was told that the palace was being attacked, He said, well, the Soviets will help us. He also didn't know that two of the previous attempts on his life, one a poisoning attempt and one a sniper attempt, had also been backed by the Soviets. In any event, he finally, before his number was up, learned that it was the Soviets who were laying siege to the palace. And um, somehow he was killed in a hail of gunfire. Soviet forces found him dead and wrapped in a carpet. And then all the men in his family were executed. The real tick-tock of this attack and the entire Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is in Sarantek's book. And uh, here's a, a rendition of, the, of that battle from that book. Many of these soldiers were supposedly part of Amin's personal security detail. Immediately before the operation, some drank vodka, others valerian. But all the same, it didn't help. He's here quoting a Russian colonel who concluded his recitation of the battle by saying, the excitement and stress was great. For many, this was the end of their biographies. Another fun fact, Soviet soldiers were all wearing Afghan uniforms when they laid siege to Amin's palace, which um, in order to make it look like a domestic coup, you may remember that uh, this is also what the Soviet troops did in the Crimea when they helped, but said they weren't helping there. So, In Washington, this move seemed like a new period of communist aggression. But in Moscow, the the position was different. The Soviet leaders basically wanted to bolster a a flagging, failing regime that was in a country that bordered the Soviet Union. So Soviets treated their invasion sort of like a a short-term quelling, or maybe not a full quell, but a quarter quell. Other nations, the Soviets thought, wouldn't beat them around for um, basically settling something that was in their backyards. And so they didn't think this would really affect U.S.-Soviet relations very much. In Washington, though, they saw it quite differently. And Carter, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Spigno Brzezinski, viewed this action as hostile in specific terms. Well, of course, it was hostile hostile in specific terms. They invaded another country. But he saw it as a move directed in the context of the Cold War. 
aimed at American prestige and as the beginning of a series of Soviet advances as a part of a new wave of expansion from the Soviets. And he thought that in addition to Soviet goals in other parts of the Middle East, he thought, uh, so in other words, in addition to whatever might be motivating the Soviets to march forward, he also felt that the Soviets were looking at the U.S. and then thinking it was weak, particularly in the wake of the hostage crisis in Iran, which was going, which was underway, that the Soviets were trying to take advantage of a weakened United States. So Brzezinski said, quote, we must convey to the Soviets that unilateral action will bring counteraction. So now it's a prestige battle with the United States. The United States responded with a grain embargo, restrictions on providing computer and oil drilling technology to the Russians, and the U.S. beefed up its U.S. Mili- its, its military presence in the region. Here's the way the CIA director Stansfield Turner talked about it at the time. How assertive the Soviets will be in the future will very likely depend upon how successful the Soviet leadership views their intervention in Afghanistan to have been. So again, linking Soviet actions in Afghanistan into the larger Cold War project. Now, this is going on at the same time you may remember from your whistle-stop history that Jimmy Carter was being challenged by Ted Kennedy in the Democratic primary. And Kennedy was running, in fact, here he is at announcing his candidacy on the idea that Carter was weak, a failed leader. Only the president can provide the sense of direction needed by the nation. For many months, we have been sinking into crisis, yet we hear no clear summons from the center of power. Aims are not set, the means of realizing them are neglected, conflicts and directions confuse our purpose, government falters, fear spreads that our leaders have resigned themselves to retreat. This country is not prepared to sound retreat. It is ready to advance. It is willing to make a stand, and so am I. There were incentives then for Carter to act tough in his response, and here to support that notion is David Kanan, a former CIA analyst, in a Wilson Center podcast looking back at the 1980 boycott. Here's how Kanan framed the political aspect of this issue. The boycott was was part of the effort at least to show we were doing something, because after Iran, where it seemed nothing was happening, I don't think anybody, especially in an election year, could afford to be perceived as doing nothing. So the U.S. strategy was essentially to make Russia pay the price for breaking the international norm of invading another country. And the second was to get Russia out of Afghanistan. So as to not only, obviously, you know, allow the Afghan people to flower in the full uh, light of their own freedom and not under the thumb of the oppressive socialists, but also to pin back the Russians' ears uh, so they didn't get adventuresome in other places. So Carter sat down at the old typewriter and wrote a letter to Uh, Brezhnev, the uh, Russian leader. In very strong language, he warned the leader that basically he didn't believe the Soviet cover story that they were taking care of. They were stabilizing this country from a local coup. And uh, Carter argued that the move in Afghanistan was putting the Russian relations with the United States at risk. Brezhnev wrote back, basically telling Carter to mind his own beeswax. And this is what he wrote. This is the Soviet leader Brezhnev, the attempt made in your letter to cast doubt on the very fact of the request of the government of Afghanistan to send our troops to this country seems strange, Brezhnev observed. 
The immoderate tone of some of the wording of your message is striking. And to what purpose? Wouldn't it be better to assess the situation more quietly, keeping in mind the higher interests of peace and not putting the relations between our two countries in last priority? Okay, so the letter writing didn't go very well. So, on January 4th, 1980, Jimmy Carter made an address to the nation from the Oval Office behind that big desk and put this move into um, into context. We should also remember Carter was running a Rose Garden strategy. So basically not engaging with Teddy Kennedy out on the stump, but because he said, I've got to deal with the Iranian crisis and I'm dealing with Afghanistan. So every time he spoke to the nation, either from Congress with the State of the Union or one of these national addresses, he's using the tools and symbols of the office to show he's on the case, but also explain why he's not out there doing hand-to-hand combat with Uh, with Kennedy. Anyway, here is what President Carter said to the nation about the Afghan matter. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan, which had hitherto not been an occupied satellite of the Soviet, Soviet Union. This invasion is an extremely serious threat to peace. Because of a threat of further Soviet expansion, into neighboring countries in Southwest Asia, and also because such an aggressive military policy is unsettling to other peoples throughout the world. This is a callous violation of international law and the United Nations Charter. It is a deliberate effort of a powerful atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people. We must recognize the strategic importance of Afghanistan to stability and peace. A Soviet-occupied Afghanistan threatens both Iran and Pakistan and is a stepping stone to possible control over much of the world's oil supplies. So it's interesting here that Carter appeals to the American people on religious grounds. So this line I thought was interesting where he says it is a deliberate effort of a powerful atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people. So the Russians are atheists and they're subjugating Muslims. That's Carter's view. Obviously, today, the Russian religious tradition is irrelevant in politics. And our current president, of course, was elected in part because he was unafraid about expressing the exact opposite sentiment towards Muslims from the one that Carter expressed. By the way, calling them atheistic is interesting, but it is worth noting that they invaded on Christmas Eve, not exactly the lesson in the Christian book of modern warfare. Of course, since Jesus was a peacemaker, there probably is no such book about, uh, although that's not so true about the Crusades. Anyway, the next big moment in this, um, after the president spoke to the nation, is on January 20th, 1980, he went on Meet the Press And he announced um, there are several instances in which the president basically declares the U.S. is not going to go to the Olympics. But um, here is basically the first big announcement. It comes in response to a question on Meet the Press. Our guest today on Meet the Press is the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Mr. President, assuming the Soviets do not pull out of Afghanistan anytime soon, do you favor the U.S. participating in the Moscow Olympics? And if not, what are the alternatives? No. Neither I nor the American people would support the sending of an American team to uh, Moscow with Soviet invasion troops in Afghanistan. So 
Carter went on on Meet the Press uh, to continue. To, uh, he said that he favored a permanent Olympic sites for the summer and the winter games, suggesting Greece for the permanent summer site. Greece, of course, the location for the games from 776 BC through 393 AD. At this point, 104 nations had voted in the United Nations to condemn the Russian invasion of Afghanistan that took place in December of 1979. And Carter on Meet the Press said he hoped that as many nations would support his call for a boycott. Now, privately, Carter had been told by his lawyers that he didn't have the legal authority to prevent American athletes from attending the Olympic Games in Moscow unless he invoked something called the International Economic Emergency Controls Act. To invoke that, he would have had to declare a national emergency. But he was also told that he could seize the passports of U.S. athletes. So they were obviously worried about Russian expansionism. And the reason they seized on the Olympics was that to the Russians, the administration believed sport was an extension of politics. They had up to this point maintained that the selection of Moscow in 1980 was confirmation of the world's approval of the Soviet foreign policy, the whole Soviet experience. Here is what Brzezinski said about this linkage between the, the prestige of the, of the Olympics and their larger goal of pinning back Soviet ears. This is Brzezinski, the National Security Advisor to Carter. We have determined that we cannot permit business as usual in social, cultural, scientific, or commercial activities. We can't say of sport that, quote, this is somehow immune. It's not logical, not possible. Worse, it is symbolically wrong, morally wrong, to hold this festival of peace in the capital of an aggressor nation, posing a threat of such strategic significance. So the rationale was to send a message to influence Soviet decisions, again, not just about this instance, but about instances going forward. Now, this is where we have a little bit of a split in the administration. CIA Director Stansfield Turner, uh, who I had quoted earlier about the general agreement on the Soviet goals or the interpretation that Afghanistan represented a new adventurism on the part of the Soviets, he, Stansfield Turner nevertheless disagreed that the boycott would help. In fact, he felt it would have almost no impact and, in fact, could backfire on the United States. He said, quote, the Soviets would also be able to play the role of an aggrieved party before a particularly sympathetic international audience and to utilize international disagreements over the boycott to exacerbate tensions between the U.S. and non-boycotting or reluctantly boycotting states, probably including some close U.S. allies. So the idea here is that the international benefit of the Olympics, this, the prestige and power of the Olympics was itself an inviolate global good. And that while people, other countries, particularly in Europe, might not be all that thrilled about Russian galloping into Afghanistan, protecting the rubble in Afghanistan from Soviet meddling was less interesting to the global community than maintaining the kind of sphere of protection and bubble of geopolitical safety that surrounded the Olympic Games. And so what's interesting here is you have the administration trying to use that global stage to embarrass and put Russia into a corner, using the prestige of the Games as leverage to get Russia to do what it wants to do. But in part, there is a view of the games. The reason they have so much prestige is they are outside of politics and therefore signing on to the U.S. position that they should be used as a lever denigrates and diminishes the sport itself. So it's a it's a kind of jump ball about what, how the Olympics should be used 
and the U.S. has struck this position and is now trying to get its allies to come along. Stansfield Turner says it might backfire. The president of the International Olympic Committee, Lord Kalanen, uh, was not a fan of the president's comments on Meet the Press. He said that the president had been hasty and said it would be legally and technically impossible to move the games from Moscow this late in the process. Moscow, for its part, said, hey, we're going to send our athletes to Lake Placid to the Winter Olympics, even though you're making all these saber-rattling noises. Or I guess they're not saber-rattling, but whatever. You're reacting so harshly to our invasion in Afghanistan. We're still going to go to Lake Placid for the Winter Olympics, no matter what the United States does about the games in Moscow in the summer. So Carter makes this. He then gives the State of the Union address on the 23rd of January and amps things up in two crucial ways. One is he unleashes something called the Carter Doctrine. And here is what the Carter Doctrine is. Let our position be absolutely clear. An attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interest of the United States of America. And such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. So this is the president setting the stakes, putting the move into Afghanistan into context. This, again, is the effort to pin back the Russian ears. So whatever may happen as a result of what's going on in Afghanistan, the president is putting down a marker about U.S. military force in response to more Russian adventurism. But then the president got a big applause line when he confronted the Russians with this line about the Olympics. And I have notified the Olympic Committee that with Soviet invading forces in Afghanistan, Neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. Now, the American athletes were shocked by this. And 125 athletes at the Olympic Training Center released a statement two days after the State of the Union address. And they, in that statement, spoke to the public and said that they had the moral high ground as much as the president did. And here's what the statement said. Quote, the very foundation, foundations of the Olympic Games began as an instrument of fostering peace. The athletes also argued that the boycott was not going to work. Here's the, their letter again. We must use actions which achieve results, not symbolic gestures, which only vent emotions. The Olympic Games should be used as a vehicle for peace. Thus, it is vitally important in these troubled times. Interestingly, the Washington Post at about this time wrote a, uh, ran a quote from 1935 from Eleanor Holm. 36 Olympics were in Germany. Hitler was on the, on the rise. And here's how Eleanor Holm, an athlete, at those times, put it, of course, the United States should not withdraw from the 1936 Olympics. Why should I or any other athlete be penalized for the actions of Joe Zilch or anybody else named Hitler, who has nothing whatsoever to do with us? So a somewhat similar sentiment in 1935 to the one in 1980. Meanwhile, back on the political front, Ted Kennedy, at the end of January, is trying to revive his campaign and gives a real stemwinder of a speech at Georgetown University. He had been laying off making foreign policy critiques about Carter because Carter's in the Rose Garden and also some people thought I was unpatriotic. Never, never mind, Kennedy un, unleashes. And he basically, in the speech at Georgetown University, says that Carter missed the warning signs with the Soviets. And so Kennedy 
says, in it is less than a year since Vienna, since the Vienna summit, when President Carter kissed President Brezhnev on the cheek. We cannot afford, Kennedy said, a foreign policy based on pangs of unrequited love. So there's a lot of pressure for Carter to be tough from the political front, in addition to obviously being tough for all the benefits and reasons that his national security team wants him to be. By the end of January, Congress is being tough. The House of Representatives uh, passed a non-binding resolution improving the decision to stay away from Moscow for the Olympics, and the vote was 386 in favor and 12 opposed. On January 30th, the Senate passed a similar measure with a vote of 88 to 4. So now we return. It's, it's the end of January. It's now February. Let's return to Muhammad Ali. He's in Africa because African nations had boycotted the Olympics in 1976 when New, e- New Zealand's rugby team broke the international sports embargo on apartheid in South Africa. So New Zealand played in South Africa. It wasn't an actual ironclad international sports embargo. It was a, well, it was a norm. Countries weren't playing in South Africa because of its apartheid policies. When New Zealand broke this, 26 African countries retaliated by sitting out the Olympic Games in Montreal in that year, in 1976. So Ali is in Africa trying to play on this sentiment in, in Africa. They boycotted in 76, and he thinks he's arguing that they should join the U.S. for the boycott in 1980. So here is Ali. For example, your kid goes into your house, he steals cookies out of the cooker jar, or he goes in and he steals food, or he does something wrong, and you don't spank him. And then tomorrow, you tell him not, he you don't spank him. He'll go here and do too much. So the Russians have made a move. And if we don't show no protest that we don't like it, they may say, hey, the Olympians are gone, the Africans came, ain't nobody worried about what we did. Let's go take Iran tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Then there goes the war. As soon as they do that. That's the champ trying to make his case for why why African nations should join the U.S. boycott. He's arguing basically the slippery slope argument. If the Russians can just invade Afghanistan, they can invade anywhere, and that it's going to lead to to another world war. And he also argues that as a Muslim, uh, he and other African Muslims should want to protect the Muslims in Afghanistan. But Ali, who did some exhibition boxing on this African trip, kind of crumbled under the diplomatic pressure. And here is the one, because he just kept getting asked by African journalists, wait a minute, Why should we join this U.S. boycott when the U.S. is still supporting South Africa, still doing business with South Africa, not doing enough to stop the apartheid policies in South Africa? And um, here's The Washington Post capturing the deflation of the Ali effort and his change of mind. The Washington Post here. Still smarting under African criticism of his role as a U.S. presidential envoy trying to win support in black Africa for a boycott of the Moscow Olympics, Muhammad Ali said today, He was transforming his trip into a fact-finding mission about African grievances against America. As he brought his African mission for President Carter to Liberia, Ali said, I have some control in boxing, but this is a game I can't control. This is uh, still quoting from the Post here. When he came to Africa last week, Ali was telling the world that Moscow had done something bad in the invasion of Afghanistan, a Muslim nation, and Carter's call for an Olympics boycott was just the right response. His audience, it turned out, was not quite so receptive to the idea, and Ali began getting some unaccustomed tough questions from the press about his at his first stop in Tanzania. Tanzania's president, one of Africa's most respected leaders, refused to see him. After his roasting in Tanzania, which uh, Ali called Tanzania, 
After his roasting in Tanzania and a later rough official reception in Nigeria, Ali began to change his pitch to suit his African audience, showing a good sense of tactics when his opponent didn't quite fit the image drawn by his managers. The number one fight with me is not Russia, Ali declared in Nigeria. The number one fight with me is South Africa. This, of course, was all a meeting uh, to put pressure before the February 20th deadline that Jimmy Carter had set for the Soviets to withdraw from Afghanistan. That deadline arrived. The Soviet troops did not withdraw. So the White House announced that the, so that the Americans would not be joining uh, and attending at the Olympics. But this wasn't the end of that because the U.S. Olympic Committee had to conf- had to confirm the move in an April meeting because the president couldn't just dictate. It had to be uh, something that the U.S. Olympic Committee agreed to. So that was a meeting set for April 12th. Um, before the April 12th meeting of the U.S. Olympic Committee, there was a meeting at the White House uh, on March 28th of past and prospective Olympic athletes and coaches who were there to hear what the administration uh, had to say about uh, this boycott and why it had to be done. Brzezinski used a pointer to outline on a map the Carter administration's interpretation of the of the situation. He spoke for 30 minutes. He noted that the 12, at that point, 12-week old takeover of Afghanistan had made it a strategic wedge, effectively doubling the Soviet's border with Iran, Soviet Union's borders with, border with Iran, and potentially placing Soviet tactical aircraft within range of the narrow Strait of Hormuz, through which passes, as Brzezinski put it, quote, an enormous percentage of the West's oil. Um, he said there were 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, and he cited evidence This suggested the possible Soviet use of toxic weaponry. So they are creating no impression that the invasion will be reversed, Brezhnev said. Sports Illustrated quoted Jane Frederick, the American record holder in the pentathlon, who was in the meeting at the White House. And she said, yesterday, I was on a sunny track in Santa Barbara. Today, I'm being exposed to the iron realities of the world. Deputy White House counsel Joseph Onik known to some of you as the father of David Onik and Matt Onik, he sketched for the athletes, the administration's plan, for an alternative competition, an alternative to the Moscow Olympics. Those games would be scheduled for late August or early September, um, and they'd be open to all athletes, including the Soviets. There were going to be several sites. They would host clusters of sport organized by uh, an international sports authority, and the whole thing would be tied together with a big television contract, which would be able to pl- pay for this adventure and this this new alternative endeavor. But at the end of this meeting, so this was an attempt, to, a hopeful attempt that they were going to be able to re- rearrange the Olympics with, because they were going to get a lot of international support. And so with all nations united or all important nations united, they would build support for this idea of moving the Olympics to some other place. At the end of the meeting, President Carter arrived and said, I cannot say what other nations will not go. Ours will not go. This was on the same day that the president told the Commerce Department to allow no more shipment of goods to Moscow to help with the Olympics, and he prohibited NBC from making any payments uh, for Olympic TV coverage. NBC had 150 hours of programming originally scheduled. All of that was scrapped. So the, the athletes who were meeting in the White House there in, uh, on that March 28th meeting uh, then all go across the street to the Hay Adams, as many people often do, uh, and they went to the bar there and got hammered. That's not true. They went to the Hay Adams and they had a discussion and they went through the sort of what are we going to do? And here's Sports Illustrated, uh, Sports Illustrated's account of that meeting. 
The full range of sentiments was clearly expressed. Boxer Jimmy Clark said, I think it's unpatriotic to even wait for the president to have to tell us not to go. Volleyball player Flo Hyman said, We are ambassadors of peace. To destroy the Olympic movement, which a boycott may well do, isn't worth a gesture that the Russian people won't even be told about. Sailor Dick Tillman said, It seems a choice between logic and emotion. Today we got the facts, and they leave little room for hope. But emotionally, Lord, it's hard to give it up. The White House had told the athletes that the Western European countries would go along, and they wouldn't participate, especially the French. And so... With that kind of international support for the U.S. position, that might convince the International Olympic Committee to change or postpone the games. So the U.S. was pretty sanguine about the fact that the rest of the international community would join on their side and that that would give the leverage to move it up to somewhere else and therefore the U.S. Olympic athletes wouldn't be left out of the Summer Olympics. But those hopes were quickly dimmed, quickly dashed, quickly put in perspective when it was announced that the European Olympic committees, that all the countries were going to continue going to the Olympics. So that included France, Italy, Great Britain. They were all pledging to send their athletes to Moscow. The U.S. did not have the allies that it thought. And a new Gall- and a Gallup poll, this is uh, in the papers at the time, commissioned for the Washington Post, so it was in the Washington Post, indicated the public opinion in Germany, in Great Britain, France, and West Germany was opposed to the boycott of the Olympics. That was very much in contrast to American attitudes. But this matters, of course, because what Carter was doing was making an international soft power play to international norms, using that leverage to take an international institution, the International Olympic Committee, under the weight of UN norms and what the U.S. hoped would be an ad hoc norm about Afghanistan, that it would pressure the International Olympic Committee, countries would go along and leave Moscow out in the cold. That was not happening. So now it's April 12th, and the U.S. Olympic Committee is meeting, and um, Walter Mondale is there. And here are a couple of things Mondale said to put this in perspective for the American Olympic uh, Committee. Above all, the decision you will make today is not a choice between a sports issue and a national security issue. For the president and Congress have made it clear that the Olympic boycott is a genuine element of America's response to the invasion of Afghanistan. It is a keystone in our call to our allies for solidarity, and thus, it is also a referendum on America's character and fundamental values. Mondale also said, like Nazi Germany at the infamous 1936 Berlin Olympics, where Hitler tried to use Olympics to legitimize his hideous government, so too Soviet dictators had begun to argue that the world's willingness to hold their Olympics in Moscow demonstrated the world Uh, demonstrated that world opinion backed the Soviet Union despite widespread international resentment towards their government and its appalling abuse of its neighbors. Well, after a stirring set of remarks like that, the Olympic Committee voted to support the American president's position. The U.S. would not go to the Olympics. Carter would later say that boycotting the Olympics was one of the most difficult decisions that he had ever made while they were going on in July, uh, Carter noted that, quote, the Olympics seemed to be shaping up to a farce for the Soviet Union winning all the gold medals, except for those in swimming that East Germany has picked up. In the end, only 61 countries boycotted. So only 61 countries joined the United States in boycotting. The attempt to use the Olympics as soft power didn't work. Russian state in Afghanistan until 1988. But the boycott of the night of the... 80 Olympics did lead to a boycott of the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. 
That involved uh, the Russians and 14 Eastern Bloc countries. All of this was led by the Soviet Union, which initiated the boycott. Um, And they organized their own major event called the Friendship Games. And uh, that was kind of a ripple effect of the U.S. boycott in 1980 and obviously froze up in uh, U.S. relations with with the Russians. But then finally, we, of course, have the effect on the athletes. And this is from Jerry Caraccioli's book. This is swimmer Glenn Mills talking about the asterisk that would forever follow him in his life. I went to school at the University of Alabama, explained Mills. In the press guide, Alabama gives its history of all the people that went that were NCAA champions, Olympians, and things like that. When everything is listed, always next to our names is an asterisk. Under the asterisk, it reads, made 1980 Olympic team, but country boycotted. It's very seldom that you see any of our names listed as Olympians without an asterisk. It kind of implies, well, they're Olympians, but maybe not really. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop, the presidential podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Our producer was Jason DeLeon. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who can run an under-seven-minute mile. He is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Thanks also to Dustin Gervais of the CBS Radio Empire, who hooked me up with the studio and has been hooking me up and basically is going to keep hooking me up now that I live in New York City. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, um, as we always are, for another edition of Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop.